Hi guys, my name is Noah Tetzner, and I host a podcast called The History of Vikings. It has been nearly 1,000 years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still they continue to fascinate us. From hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes, the Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Yes, the legendary stories, vibrant myths, and rich history of the Vikings can still be seen today. Join me in rediscovering the lost stories of history's most legendary people on my podcast, The History of Vikings. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would be delighted if you check out my podcast, The History of Vikings. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 78, Healing and Medicine. Today's episode is brought to you by our new July Patreon supporters, Michael Terry, Dominic Perry, and Andreas Hermansen, as well as PayPal donors, Vladislav Kozinevchiv, Ofermano, and Craig Finley. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the history of ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Asclepius was a hero and demigod of medicine, healing, rejuvenation, and physicians in both ancient Greek myth and religion. According to tradition, he was believed to be the first physician as a son of Apollo, himself a god of medicine, and according to the earliest accounts, a mortal woman named Coronis. His mother was either killed for being unfaithful to Apollo, or she died in labor, and afterwards, when her body was laid out on a funeral pyre, before she was consumed by the fire, Apollo had rescued the unborn child by cutting him from his mother's womb. Apollo then took the baby to the centaur Chiron, who raised the young Asclepius and instructed him in the art of medicine. Chiron, as we will see in a future episode, was famous in Greek myth for his nurturing of young heroes and his skill in medicine and herbs, among other subjects. Later, it is said that in return for some kindness rendered by Asclepius, a snake licked the child's ears clean and taught him secret knowledge. The Greeks believed that snakes were sacred beings of wisdom, healing, and resurrection. Armed with this secret knowledge, Asclepius became so proficient as a healer that he surpassed both the centaur Chiron and his father Apollo. He was even able to evade death himself and to bring others back to life from the brink of death and beyond. This caused an influx of human beings, which wrecked havoc on the universal order. Zeus did not like this, and so he decided to kill Asclepius with a thunderbolt in order to stop him from disturbing the balance and the numbers of the human population, and therefore he restored order once again. 
Others say that Asclepius was killed because after he started bringing people back from the dead, Hades thought that no more dead spirits would be coming to the underworld any longer. So he asked his brother Zeus to stop him. Regardless, this angered Apollo, who in turn killed the Cyclopes, who were the ones who made the thunderbolts for Zeus. For this act, Zeus suspended Apollo from the night sky and commanded him to serve Admetus, the king of Thessaly, for a year as his servant. Once the year had passed, though, the two were reconciled as Zeus brought Apollo back to Mount Olympus and Apollo revived the Cyclopes. According to Hyginus, after Asclepius' death, Zeus placed his body among the stars as the constellation Oithiochus, or the serpent holder. Some sources also state that Asclepius was later resurrected as an immortal god by Zeus in order to prevent any further feuds with Apollo. It was also claimed that in return for being granted this unique gift, which Heracles himself was the only other demigod to have ever received it, Asclepius was instructed by Zeus to never revive the dead without his approval again. Asclepius was married to Epione, the goddess of soothing of one's pain. Together they had five daughters. Hygieia, the goddess of health, cleanliness, and sanitation, and from where we get the word hygiene. Iasso, the goddess of recuperation from illness. Akeso, the goddess of the healing process. Aglea, the goddess of the glow of good health. And Panacea, the goddess of medicine and universal remedy. They also had two sons, Malchaon and Podolarios both of whom were highly valued medics, as basic first aid was practiced on the Greek battlefield from the earliest times. Homer tells us that the Greek army at Troy relied on the services of these two physician sons of Asclepius, who came from Thessaly, the original home of the healing god before he was elevated. In Book 4 of the Iliad, there is the famous story of Malchaon extracting an arrow from Menelaus's abdomen, cleaning the blood from his wound, and then applying the healing herbs that Chiron the centaur had once generously given to his father. Although this type of healing took place in Homer, physicians were not employed full-time as their primary duty, but they practiced medicine in a secondary capacity, as Malchion had to be summoned from the battlefield, where he himself was also fighting in order to attend Menelaus' wounds. It was not until the late 6th or early 5th centuries BC that we hear of professional full-time physicians in the Greek world. The earliest known medical school in the Greek world opened up at Cnidos on the western coast of Asia Minor in the 6th century BC, and it was here that the practice of observing patients and their symptoms was first established. Despite their known respect for Egyptian medicine, it is difficult to discern to what extent there was an Egyptian influence on Greek medical practices at this early time. It is clear, though, that the Greeks imported Egyptian substances into their pharmacopoeia, which literally means drug-making. Naturally, then, this is where we get the word pharmacy and all of its variants. Ancient Greek medicine was a compilation of theories and practices that were constantly expanded upon through new ideologies and trials. Many components were considered, intertwining the spiritual with the physical. Specifically, the ancient Greeks believed that one's health was affected by the humors, more on that later, geographic location, social class, diet, trauma, beliefs, and mindset. Early on, the ancient Greeks believed that illnesses were divine punishments and that healing was a gift from the gods. As trials continued and new theories were tested against symptoms and results, the pure spiritual beliefs regarding punishments and gifts were replaced with a foundation based in the physical cause and effect brought about by nature. 
During the late archaic, early classical periods, the principal centers of medical learning and research were Croton in southern Italy, Cyrene in Libya, the island of Kaz in the eastern Aegean, and the aforementioned Canidos on the western coast of Asia Minor. These were not medical institutions in the modern sense of the word, though. Physicians did not have to undergo any formal training, nor did they possess anything resembling a sort of medical license. Instead, medical students attached themselves to established practitioners on a purely informal basis, sort of like an apprenticeship or medical internship. Once they had acquired sufficient knowledge, they discharged themselves and were free to practice as physicians independently. The success of their careers would have depended on the size of their reputation, which means that the most successful of them must have been diligent self-promoters. One of the most famous early physicians was Demosthenes of Croton, whose impressive career is reported at length by Herodotus and who we discussed in episode 34. He had a truly international reputation, and his salary increased in turn. He was employed first by the Aginetans, who offered him 60 minai for his services, then by the Athenians, who offered 100 minai, and finally by Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, who offered him 120 minai. One mina was equivalent to 100 drachmas, and one drachma was probably the equivalent in the 6th century BC of at least two days' pay. So he was being paid quite handsomely for his medical guidance, and his reputation garnered him more and more from the highest bidder. Later, after the Persians defeated Samos and captured Ionia, he fell under the control of King Darius. After he treated the king and his wife when no one else could, Demosthenes' position at the court soared, so much so that he was given a very large house in Susa and ate at the great king's table. He still yearned for his freedom, though, and so he managed to trick Darius into letting him join an expedition to Italy, at which point he escaped back to Croton. Still, Demosthenes' career indicates that as early as the beginning of the 6th century BC, there were physicians who were prepared to move from place to place in response to local demand. The Hippocratic Treatise, entitled Errors, Waters, and Places, whose subject is the effect of climate, water supply, and location on the general health of a population, was probably written to assist physicians in their travels. We know of no Greek state that provided free public health service to its citizens, and so these physicians probably received a retainer in return for residing within the state's territory for a fixed period of time, but were free to charge for their services. It is unlikely, though, that they would have been able to administer to the needs of more than a small fraction of the total population. In the archaic and early classical periods, as we mentioned, most ancient Greek physicians regarded diseases as being of supernatural origin, brought about from the dissatisfaction of the gods or from demonic possession. The faults of the ailment thus was placed on the patient, and the role of the physician was to conciliate with the gods or exercise the demon with prayers, spells, and sacrifices. Sickness doesn't seem to have become a major preoccupation in Greece until the 5th century BC. This was when a previously insignificant healing hero, called Asclepius, was catapulted to divine status. To these ends, sanctuaries and temples dedicated to Asclepius, known as Asclepia, functioned as both religious and medical centers for those seeking medical advice, prognosis, and healing. Eventually, there were more than a hundred sanctuaries dedicated to this god throughout the Greek world. The most famous Asclepia was at Epidaurus, in the northeast Peloponnese on the Argolid Plain. 
It was the first place to worship Asclepius as a god, beginning sometime in the 5th century BC, though its temple would not be erected until the following century. The Asclepion at Epidaurus is both large, as it was eventually expanded to 180 rooms during the Roman period, and is well preserved. There is also an Asclepion on the southern slopes of the Athenian Acropolis, dating to around 420 BC. Other famous Asclepia were found on the Aegean island of Kos and at Pergamum on the western coast of Asia Minor. Starting around 350 BC, these sanctuaries grew very popular as more and more pilgrims flocked to their healing temples in order to be cured of their ills. This is demonstrated by the fact that surgical instruments and votive offerings in the form of parts of the body are commonly found there, the latter in the hope of securing the god's intervention on behalf of the body part represented. Physicians, no less than their patients, would have regarded medical expertise as an art, which was at its root a gift of the god. The fact that Hippocratic physicians took their oath in the name of Asclepius and other healing deities affords further proof of the complementary nature of the two approaches. In fact, the original Hippocratic oath began with the invocation, quote, I swear by Apollo, the physician, and by Asclepius, and by Hegea, and Panacea, and by all the gods, end quote. As late as the 2nd century AD, Galen claimed that he took up medicine because the god appeared to him in a dream and urged upon him a medical career when his father was sick. Those who were ill could travel to a sanctuary of Asclepius, seeking temple medicine. Healing sanctuaries were probably somewhat like long-time care facilities. Many of the patients remained there for months, and possibly for years, awaiting a cure. The healing that was practiced at the sanctuaries of Asclepius is likely to have been a mixture of medicine, physical treatment, spiritual healing, and perceived divine intervention. Asclepia provided carefully controlled spaces conducive to healing and fulfilled several of the requirements of institutions created for treatment. For example, the temple of Asclepius at Pergamum had a spring that flowed down into an underground room in the temple. People would come to drink the waters and to bathe in them because they were believed to have medicinal properties. Mud baths and hot teas, such as chamomile, were used to calm them or peppermint tea to soothe their headaches, which is still a home remedy used by many today. By day, they entrusted their aches and pains to human physicians, but at night, patients were encouraged to sleep in the facilities to receive divine treatment. There were two steps that needed to be done in order for a patient to be considered for such treatment the first of which was catharsis, or a ritual purification. This is when a patient underwent a series of baths and other methods of cleansing, such as what was considered a clean diet over a series of several days, or the purging of emotions through art, such as through a tragedy play. In fact, most Asclepia had theaters on site, such as Epidaurus, Athens, Cos, and Pergamum. The patient would then make offerings or sacrifices to the god, according to his or her means, so some form of money and prayers. The priest of the temple then gave the patient a prayer in which it would ease the patient's mind and create a more positive outlook for them. The supplicant would then spend the night in the holiest part of the sanctuary, the adaton. Sometimes, if they were lucky, they would enter a dreamlike state of induced sleep, known as encomesis, similar to the effects of hypnosis and they then either received divine treatment or direct guidance in the form of a vision from the god who revealed to them the source of their cure, a process often referred to as incubation. Any dreams or visions would be reported to a priest, their symptoms were then reviewed, and he would prescribe the appropriate necessary steps to treat their ailment, 
often a visit to the baths or a gymnasium. Some healing temples also would occasionally bring in sacred dogs to lick the open wounds of sick petitioners for assistance in their healing. In honor of Asclepius, a particular type of non-venomous snake was often used in healing rituals, and these snakes slithered around freely on the floor in dormitories where the sick and injured slept. Snakes were also introduced at the founding of each new temple of Asclepius throughout the classical world. As part of his iconography, Asclepius bore a rod entwined with a snake, a symbol that became associated with healing. The so-called Rod of Asclepius remains a universal symbol of medicine to this day. However, it is frequently confused with the Caducus, which was a staff wielded by the messenger god Hermes. The Rod of Asclepius embodies one snake with no wings, whereas the Caducus is represented by two snakes and a pair of wings depicting the swiftness of Hermes. Regardless, the serpent and the staff appear to have been separate symbols of Asclepius that were combined at some point in the development of his cult. The significance of the serpent has been interpreted in many ways. Sometimes the shedding of skin and renewal is emphasized as symbolizing rejuvenation, while other assessments center on the serpent as a symbol that unites and expresses the dual nature of the work of the physician, who deals with life and death, sickness and health. The ambiguity of the serpent as a symbol, and the contradictions it is thought to represent, also reflect the ambiguity of the use of drugs, which can help or harm. As demonstrated in the meaning of the term pharmakon, which meant drug, medicine, and poison in ancient Greek. In fact, products deriving from the bodies of snakes were known to have medicinal properties in ancient times, and in ancient Greece in particular, at least some were aware that snake venom, that might be fatal if it entered the bloodstream, could often be consumed. But snake venom appears to have been prescribed in some cases as a form of therapy too. Reports of miraculous cures, known as ayamata, are preserved on tablets that were erected in the Asclepion, their purpose being to propagate the report of the gods' miraculous powers to the Greek world at large. In the Asclepion of Epidaurus, three large marble boards dating to 350 BC preserve the names, case histories, complaints, and cures of about 70 patients who came to the temple with a problem and who were healed. 44 cures are recorded at Epidaurus, but the original number is thought to have been in the hundreds. A distinctive feature in many of these accounts is the emphasis placed upon the incredulity that preceded the cure. As we see in the following inscription, quote, A man came to the god as a suppliant who was so blind in one eye that all he had was an eyebrow with an empty eye socket. Some of the people in the temple laughed at him for his stupidity and thinking that he would be able to see when the eye socket was empty and contained nothing but a depression. When the man slept, though, a vision appeared to him. The god was seen to be preparing some medicine. He then opened the man's eyes and poured it all over them. When day came, he could see with both eyes and departed. End quote. The miraculous cures recorded at Epidaurus not only include blindness, but various mental and physical disabilities, paralysis, overextended pregnancies, infertility, headaches, and even baldness, among others. Though we hear of surgeons working independently in towns and on the battlefield, surgery was also performed at the healing sanctuaries, as we know from the discovery of surgical instruments at many Asclepia. Some of the surgical cures listed among the Ayamata, such as the draining of an abdominal abscess or the removal of a foreign body after traumatic altercation, seem realistic enough to have taken place. 
patients were not given anesthetics before surgical procedures, such as amputation. Instead, they were either induced into a state of enchymesis with the help of sleep-inducing substances, such as opium, or probably rendered unconscious by a simple blow to the jaw, the preferred method used by members of the medical profession until the 19th century. After an amputation, the wound would be cauterized. If it had to be dressed, the physician would wash it with wine or vinegar to reduce the chances of infection. Not surprisingly, on the Ayamata, we do not hear of the goddess Sclepius performing any sort of exorcisms or casting out of devils, because these did not trouble the classical imagination, nor did his expertise extend to the treatment of the mentally deranged. Although many of the cures may seem unbelievable to us, the part that was played by the religious faith in the healing process should not be discounted. The growth of the cult of the healing god Asclepius at the beginning of the 5th century BC exactly parallels the birth of the tradition of scientific medical inquiry, and so sickness and its cure were henceforth identified as areas of both professional and divine concern. And like other aspects of Greek life, medicine never wholly divorced itself from its religious roots. Still, though, there arose a movement of physicians who opposed ancient beliefs, offering biologically-based approaches to disease instead of divine intervention. The Greeks attribute the rise of scientific medicine to the influence of Hippocrates of Cos, who lived from around 460 to 370 BC. Although he was by no means the first doctor in recorded history, as we have seen, he is often referred to as the father of medicine, in recognition of his lasting contributions to the field as the father of the so-called Hippocratic School of Medicine. His medical practice on the island of Kos in the southeastern Aegean revolutionized medicine in ancient Greece. Although the remains of the hospital there can still be seen, Hippocrates himself is a shadowy figure about whom nothing is known for certain. Even though many early medical writings known collectively as the Hippocratic Corpus, were ascribed to him. This is because, like Pythagoras in the so-called Pythagorean school, as we mentioned in episode 20, the practitioners of Hippocratic medicine and the actions of Hippocrates himself were often commingled, and so very little can be said to be known that was truly what he thought, wrote, and did. Serranus of Ephesus, a 2nd century AD Greek physician, wrote Hippocrates' first biography and is the source of most personal information about him. According to tradition, Hippocrates' legendary genealogy traced his paternal heritage directly to Asclepius and his maternal ancestry to Heracles, to give you an idea of the type of shadowy misinformation that was propagated around about him. Serranus wrote that Hippocrates learned medicine from his father, Heraclides, and his grandfather, who was also named Hippocrates. He also studied other subjects with the natural philosopher Democritus and the sophist Gorgias. Hippocrates was probably trained at the Asclepion of Cos, and at some point, he took lessons from the Thracian physician Herodicus of Salembria. Hippocrates taught and practiced medicine throughout his life, traveling at least as far as Thessaly, Thrace, and the Propontis. Several different accounts of his death exist, but he probably died in Larissa at the age of 90. Hippocrates was mentioned in passing in the writings of two contemporaries, Plato and his Protagoras and Phaedrus, and Aristotle and his politics, both of which date from the 4th century BC. Plato describes Hippocrates as a member of the Sclepiidae. It is not clear, though, if the Sclepiidae were originally a biological family that claimed descent from the god of healing Asclepius. Some hold that they were the priests of the Asclepion. 
while others argued that they could have been a member of an order or guild of doctors venerating the god as their founder, which were separate from the healing temples. Regardless, an elaborate mythology was later built up around Hippocrates, claiming that he descended from Asclepius, as we mentioned. And following Hippocrates, this title was borne by practically all ancient Greek medical doctors, either as a sort of honorary title in allusion to the ancient family of the Asclepiidae, or just to indicate that like Hippocrates before them, they too were proficient healers. Hippocrates himself was portrayed as a wise, old doctor, an image which is reinforced by busts of him that wear large beards on a wrinkled face. Many physicians of the time wore their hair in the style of Zeus or Asclepius. Accordingly, the busts of Hippocrates that have been found could also be altered versions of portraits of these deities. Hippocrates and the beliefs that he embodied are considered medical ideals, and he is commonly portrayed as the paragon of the ancient physician or a person of preeminent qualities who acts as a pattern or model for others to aspire to be. Hippocrates' contributions revolutionized the practice of medicine, but after his death, the advancement stalled. So revered was Hippocrates that his teachings were largely taken as too great to be improved upon, and no significant advancements of his methods were made for a long time. And so, although there were quite a bit of scientific achievements taking place in the Hellenistic period, the centuries after Hippocrates' death were marked as much by retrograde movement as by further advancement in the field of medicine. For instance, after the Hippocratic period, the practice of taking clinical case histories died out. After Hippocrates, the next significant physician was Galen, a Greek who lived 500 years later in the 2nd century AD. Galen perpetuated Hippocratic medicine, but while he moved medicine forward, he also moved it backwards in other aspects. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, and so we will talk about Galen a lot more in a future episode, way down the road. The Hippocratic Corpus is a collection of around 70 early medical works that may have been part of a medical library at Cos that were then compiled into a collection in the 3rd century BC in Alexandria and were ascribed to Hippocrates in order to give them a level of authority. The whole corpus is written in Ionic Greek, though the island of Kaz wasn't a region that spoke the Doric dialect, as it was Hippocratic practice to write in this style. There are clearly works, though, that are beyond those of the Cohen school of ancient Greek medicine, but instead from the Canadian school. We will talk about these two schools shortly. Anyways, the question of whether Hippocrates himself was the author of any of the treatises in the corpus has not been conclusively answered, but current debate revolves around only a few of the treatises seen as potentially being written by him. Because of the variety of subjects, writing styles, and apparent date of construction, it has been argued that the Hippocratic corpus could not have been written by one person. The corpus thus has come to be known by his name because of his fame, as it's possible that all medical works were classified under Hippocrates by a librarian in Alexandria, and the treatises thus were probably produced by his students and followers. The corpus contains textbooks, lectures, research, notes, and philosophical essays on various subjects in medicine, in no particular order. Only a fraction of the Hippocratic writings have survived, though, which we know because lost medical works are sometimes referred to in some of the surviving treatises. Also, some of the works that have survived did so in translation from their original Greek to other languages, such as Arabic, Hebrew, Syriac, and Latin. Hippocratic medicine was notable for its strict professional conduct, discipline, and rigorous practice. 
The preamble of the Hippocratic Treatise titled On the Physician offers a physical and moral portrait of the ideal physician and recommends that physicians always be well-kept, honest, calm, understanding, and serious. The Hippocratic Treatise titled Precepts also concerns the physician's conduct. In the treatise titled On the Joints, the physician is even concerned with the provision of such courtesies as providing a patient with cushions during a procedure. And the treatise titled Decorum involves advice on good manners to be observed in the doctor's office or when visiting patients. The Hippocratic physician was even supposed to pay careful attention to all aspects of his practice. He followed detailed specifications for lighting, personnel, instruments, the positioning of the patient, and techniques of bandaging and splinting in the operating room. He even kept his fingernails to a precise length. The duties of the physician are an object of the Hippocratic writer's attention as well. A famous maxim in the treatise titled Epidemics advises, quote, As to diseases, make a habit of two things, to help or at least to do no harm, end quote. The author of the treatise titled Techne defends the status of medicine as an art, or techne, hence the title, against opponents who claim it produces no better results in warding off disease than chance does. Perhaps a rebuttal of the sophist Protagoras' critique of so-called expert knowledge. Since there were no medical degrees that give modern doctors a certain level of respect and built-in competency, ancient doctors often had to defend themselves and their profession, both of which were judged based solely on their results. The Hippocratic author in the treatise titled Prognosis writes, quote, If a doctor can discover and tell his patients their past and present symptoms and what is going to happen, people will trust his diagnosis and have the confidence to put themselves in his hands. It is impossible to cure all patients, but if he recognizes and announces before the event which cases will turn out to be fatal and which will not, he will avoid criticism, end quote. Given the absence of any objective criteria for determining commonly agreed-upon standards of medical competence, it is hardly surprising that allegations of charlatism and quackery are commonplace in ancient medical texts. However, although anyone could claim to possess a certain set of healing skills, some physicians organized themselves into guilds and agreed to abide by prescribed rules of medical conduct. The most important evidence for this is the famous Hippocratic Oath, a landmark declaration of medical ethics which in antiquity was attributed to Hippocrates himself, though it is believed to have been written after his death, sometime between the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. Regardless, although we do not know what proportion of the medical profession observed it, those who took the oath seem to have constituted a closed shop, so to speak, since they swore to divulge their professional knowledge only to a select few. In antiquity, the punishment for breaking the Hippocratic Oath could range from a financial penalty to losing the right to practice medicine entirely. The oath is both philosophical and practical, and its demand for integrity and confidentiality have remained the cornerstone of medical ethics in the Western world. While the oath is rarely used in its original form today, it serves as foundation for other similar oaths and laws that define good medical practice and morals. Such derivatives are regularly taken today by medical graduates about to enter the practice, including such statements as, I will give treatment to help the sick to the best of my ability and judgment. I will not give lethal drugs to anyone if I am asked. And whatever I see or hear, which should not be spoken to any person outside, I will never divulge, among many others. In addition to setting high standards of professional conduct, 
Hippocratic medicine is famous for being rigorously scientific. In fact, Hippocrates is credited with being the first person to believe that diseases were caused naturally, not because of superstition or the gods. Similarly, he was credited by the disciples of Pythagoras for aligning philosophy and medicine. And so he separated the discipline of medicine from religion, believing and arguing that disease was not a punishment inflicted by the gods, but rather the product of environmental factors, diet, and living habits. Indeed, there's not a single mention of a mystical illness in the entirety of the Hippocratic corpus. Although relations between the advocates of faith-based healing and scientific medicine seemed to have been essentially benign, nonetheless, some rivalry did exist. For example, the author of a Hippocratic work entitled On the Diseases of Virgins declared that menstrual irregularities in young girls could best be cured not by making sacrifices to the virgin goddess Artemis, but by having intercourse or rather by getting married, since it amounted to the same thing, as we described in great detail in episode 75. Similarly, the author of the celebrated Hippocratic treatise entitled On the Sacred Disease vehemently opposed the prevailing view that epilepsy was an affliction caused by the gods, hence why it was called the sacred disease, or hiranosos. Epilepsy appears within Greek mythology as it is associated with the moon goddesses Selene and Artemis, who afflicted it upon those who angered them. Castigating witch doctors, faith healers, quacks, and charlatans for seeking to alleviate the symptoms by prescribing purifications and incantations, along with abstinence from baths, the Hippocratic doctor boldly asserted that epilepsy is not more divine than any other disease. Quote, the so-called sacred disease is not, in my opinion, any more divine or sacred than any other. It has specific characteristics and a definite cause. Quacks concealed their own ignorance and inability to give any useful treatment by claiming a divine element. To hide their lack of understanding, they called the disease sacred. The fact is that the cause of this disease, as of all other serious diseases, lies in the brain. End quote. The Hippocratic doctor goes on to explain how the functions of the brain can be damaged, concluding with the claim that any skilled practitioner could cure the disease provided that they could distinguish the right moment for the application of the remedies. Hippocratic medicine proposed that heredity was an important cause for epilepsy, that it will worsen over time if it presents itself at an early age, and made note of the physical characteristics, as well as the social shame, associated with the disease. Instead of referring to it as the sacred disease, though, he instead called it the great disease. However, this view was not generally accepted, and evil spirits continued to be blamed for the next 2,000 years. Hippocrates is also credited with applying the concept of humorism to ancient Greek medicine. The word humor is a translation of kaimos, which literally means juice or sap. The Hippocratic treatise titled On the Nature of Man describes the theory as follows. Quote, the human body contains hema, or blood, phlegma, or phlegm, xanthe chole, or yellow bile, and melina chole, or black bile. These are the things that make up its constitution and cause its health and pains. Health is primarily that state in which these constituent substances are in the correct proportion to each other, both in strength and quantity, and are well mixed. Pain occurs when one of the substances presents either a deficiency or an excess, or are separated in the body and not mixed with the others. End quote. The humorous system of medicine was highly individualistic, for all patients were said to have in their bodies their own unique humoral composition. 
Diseases and disabilities then supposedly resulted from a surplus or imbalance of one of these four fluids. And a patient's personality could be negatively affected too. Since blood was believed to be produced exclusively by the liver, and an excess of yellow bile was thought to produce aggression, or a choleric temperament, an excess of anger reciprocally gave rise to liver derangements and a sanguine temperament. Likewise, an excess of black bile caused depression, or melancholic temperament, and an excess of phlegm is associated with apathetic behavior, or phlegmatic temperament. The theory of humorism was closely related to the theory of the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, where earth predominantly is present in the black bile, fire in the yellow bile, water in the phlegm, and all four elements are present in the blood. Paired qualities were also associated with each humor, moist and warm with blood, warm and dry with yellow bile, dry and cold with black bile, and cold and moist with phlegm. And being too hot, cold, dry, or wet disturbed the humoral balance. And so those physicians who practice humoral medicine focused on reestablishing balance between the humors. From Hippocrates onwards, the humoral theory became the most commonly held view of the human body amongst Western and Islamic physicians until the advent of modern medical research in the 19th century. However, the concept has not been used in medicine since then. In addition, Hippocrates worked with many convictions that were based on what is now known to be incorrect anatomy and physiology. This was because, despite the keen interest in medicine by the ancient Greeks, their knowledge of the internal workings of the human body was extremely rudimentary, since dissection was not employed by them in the study of anatomy at all before the Hellenistic period. And even then, the practice was perhaps confined to just Alexandria. And so it makes sense that none of the works ascribed to Hippocrates is devoted to the study of either anatomy or physiology. Aristotle, writing at the close of the 4th century BC, in his treatise titled The History of Animals, frankly states, quote, The internal parts of the body, especially those belonging to humans, are unknown. We must therefore examine the parts of other creatures that resemble humans, end quote. This refusal, or at least reluctance, to perform dissection was due largely to religious scruples, since the Greeks believed that the procedure could prevent the deceased from entering Hades. And so it wasn't until the Greek doctors had a chance to work in Ptolemaic Egypt, where the local Egyptians didn't have such qualms, think mummies, that their knowledge of anatomy and physiology increased. Ignorance of dissection, though, did not prevent physicians and scientists from inventing elaborate theories about the internal workings of the human body, particularly the female body, which again we covered in great detail in episode 75. Ancient Greek schools of medicine were split into two camps on how to deal with diseases. Those who followed the Canidian school of medicine focused on diagnosis, referring to the identification of an illness or other problem by examining and treating the symptoms. Without the ability to dissect, though, the Canidian school consequently failed to distinguish when one disease caused many possible series of symptoms. Those who followed the Hippocratic, or Cohen school, managed to achieve greater success, though, by focusing on passive treatments and prognosis meaning they try to predict the likely future course of a disease or ailment. However, with our modern understanding of anatomy and physiology, Hippocratic medicine and its philosophy are far removed from that of modern medical practices. Now the physicians focus on specific diagnosis and specialized treatment, both of which were espoused by the Canadian school. 
Still, though, one of the strengths of Hippocratic medicine compared to the Canadian school at the time was its emphasis on prognosis. During the heyday of the Hippocratic school, medicinal therapy was quite young, and often the best thing that physicians could do was to evaluate an illness and predict its likely progression based upon data collected in detailed case histories. And so the Hippocratic school gave great importance to the clinical doctrines of observation and documentation. These doctrines dictated that physicians recorded their findings and their medicinal methods in a very clear and objective manner, so that these records may be passed down and employed by other physicians. Hippocrates made careful, regular notes of many symptoms, including one's complexion, pulse, fever, pains, movement, and excretions. For example, he is said to have measured a patient's pulse when taking a case history to discover whether the patient was lying. Hippocrates even noted family history and environment. And so to him, medicine owes the art of clinical inspection and observation. It's for this reason, then, that he may be more properly termed as the father of medicine. For the Hippocratic school, medical treatment was seen as a science, not a philosophy, as the author of the treatise titled Precepts points out. Quote, In medical practice, one must pay attention to experience and logic, rather than to plausible theorizing. I approve, however, of theorizing if it is based on actual cases and draws its conclusions from observed facts. But if it starts from some plausible fiction, it often causes patients discomfort and pain. End quote. Experience in treatments was built up through careful observation, which can best be embodied in a series of sayings written down in a Hippocratic treatise entitled Aphorisms. It begins with a statement, quote, Life is short, art is long, opportunity is brief, experiment is dangerous, judgment is difficult, end quote. This serves as a fitting comment about the risks that were inherent with medical intervention throughout antiquity. Other aphorisms include, quote, In acute cases, use drugs rarely and only at the onset of the disease, and do so only after a careful preliminary examination. It is better to be full of drink than full of food. In all illnesses, a vigorous frame of mind and the enjoyment of food and drink are good signs. The opposites are bad. The drinking of neat wine relieves hunger. Very fat people are more liable to sudden death than those who are lean. And those who contract tetanus either die within four days or recover fully if they survive longer than this, among many others. That last aphorism, which was just mentioned, demonstrates another important concept in Hippocratic medicine, that of a crisis, a point in the progression of disease at which either the illness would begin to triumph and the patient would succumb to death, or the opposite would occur and natural processes would make the patient recover. After a crisis, a relapse might follow, and then another deciding crisis would occur. According to this doctrine, crises tended to occur on what are known as critical days, which were supposed to be a fixed time after the contraction of a disease. If a crisis occurred on a day far removed from a critical day, a relapse then might be expected. Galen believed that this idea originated with Hippocrates, though it is possible that it predated him. Hippocratic physicians also emphasized the importance of environment, as they believed that their patients would be subjected to various diseases based on the location where they resided. For example, the local water supply and the direction that the wind blew could influence the health of the local populace. In addition, it was believed that patients played an important role in their treatment. As stated once again in the treatise titled Aphorisms, quote, 
It is not enough for the physician to do what is necessary, but the patient and the attendant must do their part as well, end quote. Naturally, though, patient compliance was rooted in their respect for the physician. According to the treatise titled Prognostic, a physician was able to increase their medical reputation and respect through their ability to prognosticate, meaning they could determine the outcome of the disease. Physicians thus had to have an active role in the lives of patients by taking into consideration their place of residence. In particular, the ability to correctly distinguish between fatal and recoverable diseases was important for patient trust and respect, which in turn positively influenced patient compliance. With the growth of patient compliance in Greek medicine, consent became an important factor in doctor and patient relationship. Presented with all the information concerning their health, the patient then had to make the decision to accept treatment. Physician and patient responsibility is mentioned in the treatise titled Epidemics, where the author states, quote, There are three factors in the practice of medicine, the disease, the patient, and the physician. The physician is the servant of science, and the patient must do what he can to fight the disease with the assistance of the physician, end quote. In several texts of the Hippocratic Corpus, the anonymous physicians developed theories on illness, sometimes grappling with the methodological difficulties that lie in the way of effective and consistent diagnosis and treatment. One of the great merits of these physicians is that they were not content to only practice medicine and to commit their experience to writing, but they have commented on their own activity. In doing so, Hippocrates and his followers were the first to describe many diseases and medical conditions. For example, Hippocrates is given credit for the first description of the clubbing of the fingers, which is an important diagnostic sign in chronic lung disease, lung cancer, and cyanotic heart disease. For this reason, clubbed fingers are sometimes referred to as Hippocratic fingers. Hippocrates was also the first physician to describe cachexia, also known as Hippocratic face, in the treatise titled Prognosis. Quote, if the patient's facial appearance may be described thus, the nose sharp, the eyes sunken, the temples fallen in, the ears cold and drawn in and their lobes distorted, the skin of the face hard, stretched and dry, and the color of the face pale or dusky, and if there is no improvement within a prescribed period of time, it must be realized that this sign portends death, end quote. Essentially, it is the change produced in the face brought on after a long illness, excessive hunger, digestive issues, and so forth, that may bring about an impending death. In particular, this appearance is seen in the end stages of some diseases, usually in cancer. Hippocrates also began to categorize illnesses as acute, chronic, endemic, epidemic, and pandemic. Another of Hippocrates' major contributions may be found in his descriptions of the symptomatology, physical findings, surgical treatment, and prognosis of thoracic empyema, or an abscess in or around the lungs. His teachings remain relevant to present-day students of pulmonary medicine and surgery. In fact, Hippocrates was the first documented chest surgeon, and his findings and techniques, while crude, such as the use of lead pipes to drain a chest wall abscess, are still considered to be valid. The Hippocratic School of Medicine also described quite well the ailments of the human rectum and its treatment, despite the school's poor theory of medicine. Hemorrhoids, for example, though believed to be caused by an excess of bile and phlegm, were treated by Hippocratic physicians in relatively advanced ways. 
Cautery and excision are described in Hippocratic corpus, in addition to the preferred methods, which were ligating the hemorrhoids and drying them with a hot iron, an effective but no doubt painful procedure. Thank goodness we have rubber bands for this now. Other treatments, such as applying various salves, are suggested as well. Today, treatment for hemorrhoids still includes burning, strangling, and excising. Also, some of the fundamental concepts of proctoscopy outlined in the Hippocratic corpus are still in use. For example, they discuss the uses of the rectal speculum, a common medical device. This constitutes the earliest recorded reference to anoscopy, or the looking inside of the anus with a funnel-like speculum. Still, though, compared to modern medical techniques, Hippocratic medicine was both humble and passive. They took a therapeutic approach based on the healing power of nature and often used lifestyle modifications, such as diet and exercise, in order to treat diseases and ailments. Herodicus of Salembria, who we mentioned earlier as a tutor of Hippocrates, was best known for being the first to prescribe therapeutic exercise for the treatment of diseases and the maintenance of good overall health. He also recommended a good diet and massages using beneficial herbs and oils, and his theories are thus considered the foundation of sports medicine. In particular, he was very specific in the manner that a massage should be given. He recommended that the rubbing initially should be slow and gentle, then subsequently faster, with the application of more and more pressure, which was to be followed by more gentle friction. Herodicus is also described as a pedotribase, or a gymnasium master, as well as a sophist. According to Plato, Herodicus often recommended that his patients should walk for good health, in particular the walk from Athens to Megara, a distance of a little more than 20 miles. And so it's no surprise that the trainers at Gymnasia were able to develop a working knowledge of surface anatomy, diet, and exercise. Although diagnosis of fractures and dislocations were often dealt with quite successfully, the Greeks had no notion of germs or microorganisms, and so their understanding of the causes of disease was slight. Thus, although surgery, drugs, bleeding, and purges were used, most treatment was cautious and concentrated on diet, exercise, and keeping the patient as comfortable as possible. According to this doctrine, the body contains within itself the power to rebalance the four humors and thus heal itself, a process called physis. Naturally then, Hippocratic therapy focused on simply easing this process. To this end, Hippocrates believed that rest and immobilization were of capital importance. In general, Hippocratic medicine was very kind to the patient, as treatment was gentle and it emphasized keeping the patient clean and sterile. For example, only clean water or wine were to be used on wounds, though a drier treatment was preferable. Soothing balms were sometimes employed as well. The Hippocratic Corpus recommends the use of some 380 different herbal remedies for a variety of ailments, but because they were reluctant to administer drugs, they were only used for certain occasions. He also was reluctant to have his patients engage in specialized treatment that might prove to be wrongly chosen and so generalized therapy followed a generalized diagnosis. These generalized treatments that he prescribed included the consumption of apple cider vinegar and fasting. In fact, Hippocrates believed that eating when you are sick is as if you are feeding the sickness. Although this type of medical advice was probably insufficient for most diseases, this passive approach was very successful in treating relatively simple ailments, such as broken bones, which required traction to stretch the skeletal system and relieve pressure on the injured area. To this end, Hippocrates was said to have invented the so-called Hippocratic Bench. 
onto which the patient would lie at an adjustable angle, and ropes would be tied around his arms, waist, legs, or feet, depending on the treatment needed. Winches, or rope cranks, would then be used to pull the ropes apart, correcting curvature in the spine, or separating a displaced fracture so that the bones could be set properly. This was the forerunner of the traction devices used in modern orthopedics, as well as of the rack, an instrument of torture that was used in Greece on slaves and non-citizens as early as the 4th century BC, in order to gain confessions for crimes. It would be increasingly implemented by the Roman emperors, as well as the kings of medieval Europe. It is a chilling reflection that most people in the ancient world would have had to deal with physical pain on a level and with a frequency and intensity that is virtually inconceivable in the Western world today. In fact, the first Greek doctor to practice in Rome, a man named Akagathus, was nicknamed Carnifex, a Latin word which means butcher. The name alone makes one squirm, imagining the unpleasantness of what it was like to be less than healthy in the ancient world. For those who were ill, injured, or disabled, there were no painkillers, no antibiotics, and no anesthetics. It is also a fact that only when they were severely ill or in pain would most Greeks have had the luxury of taking to their beds. The first response of the poor or downtrodden was likely to try to shrug it off. There was work to be done after all, so for the most part, they would have had to grit their teeth and get on with daily life. If the pain grew intense, such lowly citizens might have had a dedication at the shrine of the local Iatros Hiros, a hero credited with healing powers, or engaged the services of a folk healer to work wonders with amulets, spells, or herbal remedies. If these measures didn't work, the sufferer might decide to consult a physician. However, the majority of patients who received medical attention were probably wealthy individuals who suffered from curable illnesses and injuries. And so probably the chronically sick, those suffering from degenerative diseases, and the elderly would have had little opportunity to avail themselves to the services of medical professionals. In fact, none of the Hippocratic case studies describes patients with chronic illnesses. This is further corroborated by an observation made by Socrates in Plato's Republic that Asclepius revealed the art of medicine only on behalf of those who, quote, by nature and way of life are healthy, but have some hidden illness in them, end quote. Socrates continues, quote, however, in the case of those whose bodies are inwardly diseased through and through, the God did not attempt to prolong an already wretched existence for the individual concerned, who in all probability would foster other offspring like himself. If a man is incapable of living a normal existence, he did not think it right to treat him, since such a person is of use neither to himself nor to the state. End quote. Ancient diseases are notoriously difficult to identify, even when paleopathologists have skeletal evidence to work with. Poor sanitation, the lack of a hygienic water supply, and malnutrition were probably the major sources of illnesses that caused death. Some of the most prevalent diseases in the ancient world are thought to have been meningitis, gastroenteritis, dysentery, diarrhea, beriberi, rickets, scurvy, malaria, typhoid, pneumonia, and tuberculosis, which is based on their symptoms believed to have been described in the Hippocratic texts. There is evidence that in some regions, arteriosclerosis affected as much as 80% of the population. We also hear of diphtheria, chickenpox, mumps, and whooping cough, but there is no evidence for either cholera or measles, and leprosy did not reach Greece until the Hellenistic period. 
Cancer was known, though, and according to Galen, a physician of the 2nd century AD, it was particularly common in the breasts. Given the extremely high infant mortality rate, childhood diseases, such as rickets and anemia, must have been widespread. Some sexually transmitted diseases were also known, though not syphilis or gonorrhea, the two most popular STDs in the modern world. Because most individual communities were fairly self-contained, epidemics did not often spread outside their borders. Nearly all of the diseases described are endemic diseases, which literally means to be contained within the demos, or people, meaning that it did not spread beyond the polis. The most famous epidemic in Greek history was the plague that afflicted Athens from 430 to 426 BC, the direct result of Pericles' controversial decision to crowd the entire population of Athens within the city walls, and it carried off perhaps as much as one-third of the entire population. Although its identity continues to be disputed, typhus and smallpox are considered to be the most likely candidates. We will discuss this policy, the consequences of it, and the plague in more detail in a greater episode. A particularly interesting source of information for the treatment of disease is a Hippocratic work called Epidemics. The writer tells us that one year on the island of Thassos, quote, most of those who fell sick and died were youths, young men, those in the prime of life, the smooth-skinned, those of fair complexion, persons with either straight hair or black hair, those with black eyes, persons who live dissolutely and carelessly, those with either a thin voice or a rough voice, lispers, and those given to sensual indulgence. Very many women of this type also perished. End quote. The passage indicates how vulnerable to disease was ascribed to a wide variety of largely, if not wholly, irrelevant factors, including gender, age, skin color, tone of voice, type of hair, and lifestyle. Many individual case studies have come down to us as well. They have been carefully and regularly observed. Books 2 and 3 contain 42 case studies of individuals, 25 of which resulted in the patient's death. In light of the very limited understanding of how epidemics spread, this is hardly surprising. Here is one that sounds like diphtheria. Quote, A woman living near Asterion's house suffered from a sore throat. The illness began with indistinctness of voice. The tongue was inflamed and parched. First day, shivering in high temperature. Third day, rigor, acute fever, a reddish hard swelling on her throat, extending to her chest on both sides. Extremities cold and livid. Breathing superficial. Drink regurgitated, unable to swallow. Stools and urine ceased. Fourth day, all symptoms much worse. Fifth day, died. End quote. The ancient Greeks were also well aware of mental diseases. Although they lacked the scientific terminology to systematize and explain pathological states of consciousness, they were nonetheless capable of subjecting individuals to close psychological scrutiny. Greek tragedy, in particular, manifests a keen fascination with mental abnormality, best outlined in the plot of Sophocles' Ajax, which we described in episode 51. After being defeated in his bid to win the prize for being the foremost soldier in the Greek army, Ajax goes completely berserk and engages in a cattle-slotting rampage. He does this in the belief that he is murdering Agamemnon and Menelaus, the war leaders who awarded the prize to his rival. This delusional state in which he mistakes the cattle for the Greek war leaders, is followed by one of depression. 
When he returns to his senses, Ajax is overcome with intense shame, not because he tried to assassinate his superior officers, but because he tried and so conspicuously failed. The hero now sees the world with unbearable clarity and realizes that he has no place in it. There are three principal categories of suicide, egoistic, altruistic, and anomic. And Sophocles' depiction of Ajax's suicide is so complex that it contains elements of all three. It's not just in the realm of myth, though, that we find evidence for major psychological disturbances. The madness of the Spartan king Cleomenes, as reported by Herodotus, in which we discussed in episode 36, has been cited by medical professionals as a classic example of paranoid schizophrenia. The king's illness, which provoked him to strike anyone whom he met in the face with his staff, was variously explained by Herodotus either as a punishment brought on by the gods for having burned down a sacred grove, or as a consequence of his fondness for unmixed wine, the consumption of which was believed to result in madness. Cleomenes ultimately became so violent that his relatives had him imprisoned. While in prison, he managed to intimidate his jailer into giving him a knife, whereupon he committed suicide by mutilating himself. No one, it seems, tried to cure Cleomenes of his psychosis by medical means. Perhaps the Spartans were particularly unenlightened in such matters. Euripides, at least, was aware that those who have become temporarily deranged can be talked back to sanity, which might reflect a more advanced attitude towards the mentally sick that may have prevailed in Athens. Furthermore, at the end of Euripides' Bacchae, which we discussed in episode 55, the Theban hero Cadmus gently coaxes his daughter, Agave, into the realization that she has dismembered her son, Pentheus, under the influence of religious ecstasy. Despite the horror of her act, he treats her state of mind as curable. Paranoid schizophrenics and others who were judged to be a danger to the rest of society may have been kept in confinement for short periods of time. The local prison thus probably did double duty for criminals and the criminally insane. In a passage in his laws, which anticipates the later use of asylums for the incarceration of political prisoners in the modern world, Plato refers darkly to a sophronisterion, or a house of correction, where he proposes that those professing atheism should be imprisoned for five years at a stretch. While serving out their time, he goes on to state that they should be permitted to consort only with the members of the so-called nocturnal council, and then exclusively about matters connected with their moral welfare. There is no external evidence, though, for the kind of madhouse type of institution to which Plato alludes. Moreover, it is frankly doubtful that the Greeks would have possessed the resources to provide long-term professional care for the mentally sick, since they didn't even have the resources to do so for the elderly or the chronically sick. It has been estimated that approximately 10% of the world's population today, or more than a half a billion people, are disabled. Of course, similar statistics are unknown for the ancient world, and there is nothing in any ancient text to indicate the proportion of the disabled as a percentage of the population overall. This is because the Greeks were not as confessional as we tend to be today, and so we rarely hear of illnesses or injuries, even in the biographies of famous men. The state of one's health, it seems, wasn't considered significant or interesting. An analysis of 233 skeletons from a Greek cemetery at Pantanello near Metapontum in southern Italy has revealed that 56% exhibit bone pathologies resulting from fractures, 
metabolic disorders, and systemic infections. Although this is a small sample size, there are several reasons for supposing that most Greeks probably became at least partially disabled by the time they had reached middle age, let alone old age, due to the everyday demands and stresses of life in the ancient world. There was no remedy for many ailments that result in permanent disability if they are not treated properly. The ancient world was extremely hazardous, and few individuals would have escaped serious injury or disfigurement at some time during their lives. The price of survival for the average man or woman was an unpalatable assortment of rotten teeth, failing eyesight and increasing deafness, unalleviated by earpieces and corrective lenses like we have today, constant back pains, arthritis, failing hips and knees, vicious stomach ulcers, and unpredictable bowel movements. Injuries to the feet and legs were very common, as we know from the fact that these generated the largest number of votive offerings in healing sanctuaries. Because there were only very limited means of alleviating any disability, whether slight or severe, a relatively mild disability like astigmatism or a badly set fracture would often have been as constricting as a major one. Among the poor, the onset of a disability would have meant a further reduction in economic circumstances, thereby accelerating the pace of their decline even further. It goes without saying, then, that those who were the most at risk of becoming disabled, as a result of both sickness and injury, were slaves. Even though we hear nothing about their fate, if a slave became incapacitated due to some sort of physical disability, they obviously would have been entirely dependent on the goodwill of their masters and mistresses. Likewise, because no professional medical care was available for the bedridden, it would have also been the household slaves who tended to the needs of the seriously disabled, as full-time caregivers for their masters. In addition to those who became disabled in later life, many infants probably suffered permanent debility from consuming contaminated drinking water, which encourages the spread of cholera and typhus. Viral and bacterial diseases, such as meningitis, measles, mumps, scarlet fever, and smallpox, which produce damaging side effects like deafness and blindness, are also likely to have been common. As we mentioned in episode 75, malnutrition, which impedes the growth and composition of bones, is likely to have been especially prevalent among girls, as they generally were fed less than their male counterparts. Furthermore, far fewer congenitally deformed infants would have survived to adulthood than is the case today, though in part because the Greeks had very little reluctance about withholding the necessities of life from those deemed incapable of leading a full and independent existence. At Sparta, in fact, as we discussed in episode 23, the abandonment of deformed infants was required by law. Likewise, Aristotle recommended that in a well-ordered polity, there should be a law to prevent the rearing of a deformed child. Reports of persons exhibiting gross deformities were probably widely circulated throughout the Greek world, as the name suggests of the one-eyed giant Polyphemus, literally much talked about, even though Homer in the Odyssey never specifically describes the giant's medical condition, known as synothalmia, literally eyes together or one-eyed. Hesiod in his works and days hints that the birth of a congenitally deformed infant was an expression of divine ill will or anger. Furthermore, oaths frequently contained the provision that if they were broken, the oathbreaker would be cursed to give birth to children who are terata, or monsters. Such a belief would surely have acted as an inducement to abandon a deformed child rather than let it live as a permanent reminder of its parents' shame. There is no evidence, though, to indicate that the Greeks took official notice of abnormal births, nor that they constituted a distinctive category of divination. This was in marked contrast to Rome, 
where the birth of a deformed child was regarded as portentous. The absence of physical blemish, though, was a requirement for anyone who wished to hold a priesthood. Given the religious importance attached to physical wholeness, then, it is likely that the deformed were stigmatized as second-class citizens, such as the hunchbacked, Thersites, whose humiliation at the hands of Odysseus in the Iliad is greeted with cheers and approval by the entire Greek army. Also, no provision was made to facilitate the ease of participation for the physically disadvantaged in ceremonies and rituals of a civic or religious nature. There's also some evidence to suggest that those with congenital defects would have become scapegoats in times of crisis. They might have been driven into exile and ritually cursed. They were thought to feel resentment for their disabilities towards the gods or nature, and thus were judged to be harmful to society. Not surprisingly, very few prominent individuals are known to have been congenitally deformed. A rare exception is the Spartan king Agesilaus, who was both diminutive and congenitally lame. Those with congenital defects had basically three options for survival. They could capitalize on their deformities by making themselves appear ridiculous. The 2nd century AD satirist Lucian tells us that hunchbacks, cripples, the lame, dwarfs, and obese women were popular entertainers at symposia, and there's plenty of artistic evidence to back up his claim. They could also perform tasks that didn't require them to be whole-bodied, such as a blacksmith, potter, painter, or jeweler for the lame, and a poet, musician, or seer, for the blind. The majority of the severely disabled and chronically deformed, though, probably begged or claimed the indulgence of a well-to-do relative in order to survive. Because as we have seen, in ancient Greece, extended families were the norm and communities were more tightly knit than in our society. The fact remains, though, that the disabled were extremely vulnerable. Even those who were protected by their families or found work were subject to the loathing of their fellow citizens. They were feared, and their existence was regarded as evidence of divine disfavor. Indeed, many of the disabled may have believed these superstitions themselves. As the crippled fire god Hephaestus in the Odyssey moans, quote, No one is responsible for the fact that I am deformed except my own parents, and I wish they had never given birth to me, end quote. We discuss how Hephaestus came to be lame in episode 67. Nowhere else in Greek literature is there a similarly heart-wrenching utterance from a disabled person. Although the disabled were numerous, they left little trace in the historical record. Evidently, they saw no advantage in trailing their misery before the public eye. Physical pain and discomfort were not the only burdens that the disabled had to endure, though, as they were routinely exposed to shame, stigma, disgrace, and ridicule. Overall, it seems likely that the disabled were expected to suffer in silence, make as few demands upon society as possible, and remain hidden behind closed doors, because their presence constituted a source of shame to both their families and themselves. Their plight is easily overlooked when we conjure up the image of godlike physical perfection, bequeathed to us especially in the idealism of classical Greek art. The only state known to have made any provision for its disabled was Athens, as there was a small state pension for those who could prove that they were incapacitated. Aristotle in his treatise titled The Constitution of Athens writes, quote, The council inspects the disabled, for there is a law that bids those who have less than three minae and who are disabled and incapable of work to be inspected by the boule, which provides them with two obols per day at public expense, end quote. The primary candidates, no doubt, were those who had been injured or maimed while fighting for the Athenian polis, but we have no indication that the war wounded were cared for medically by the state. Many probably ended their days on crutches or confined to their beds. 
Even so, there was a deep suspicion against layabouts, and those claiming disability pensions were required to undergo a physical examination by the boule. There also existed an Athenian law that enabled high-minded or meddlesome citizens to bring charges against persons whom they suspected of claiming welfare under false pretenses. Now that we have talked about the type of medical treatment, illnesses, and ailments that an ancient Greek might have experienced in his or her lifetime, on the next episode, we will discuss old age and what happened to their bodies after they died. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 79, Old Age, Death, and Burial. Thank you.